everyone. Welcome to Who's Training Who, episode three. I'm Tom. I'm Allie. And this podcast is all about dogs. We talk training, behavior, give tips and tricks, and we talk to people who do cool things with dogs and or for dogs. We hope that by listening to this podcast, we can help you have a better relationship with your dog and any dog you meet. On today's episode, we are talking to Jesse Casper from Illinois Doberman Rescue Plus, and on our Ask a Trainer segment, Allie is going to talk about how to bring a new dog into your home. So let's get started. So let's welcome our guest, Jesse Casper. Thank you for having me. So tell us a little bit about IDR, how it got started, and where it is now. IDR was officially formed in 2003, but our vice president and founder, Andy Ivanicki, had already been saving Dobermans independently out of Adopt Neighborville. Andy is involved in the show circuit and uh, the ethical breeding side of Dobermans, uh, the responsible breeding side. Out in the world, he just saw a lot of people who weren't breeding Dobermans as ethically as he would like. You know, most ethical breeders will take back their stock if you can no longer care for it. It's usually in their contracts. So what he was finding was that a lot of unethical breeding was happening, a lot of backyard breeding was happening, and there were a lot of homeless Dobermans. And since that is really where his heart was, he decided to go into the rescue world. So he started doing that out of Adopt Neighborville and then eventually moved on, formed the rescue in 2003, which is officially Illinois Doberman Rescue Plus. We do Dobermans and what we call our plus division, which is mixed breeds, other purebreds, small and large. We also have a feline division as well. So that's what the plus and Illinois Doberman Rescue Plus stands for. So why did you get involved? So I personally chose Dobermans as my heart breed because I grew up with a Doberman when I was little and my grandfather passed away from cancer when I was about five or six and he had a Doberman named Chatsy and she just loved me and I loved her and we did everything together. Um, I was the only grandchild that he ever knew before he passed away. And after he passed away, I continued to grow up with his Doberman. And that Doberman had such a special place in his heart that I think that just kind of profoundly stuck with me. So I've always had this affinity and this love for Dobermans that I just can't really explain. And that comes from my childhood and and my grandfather and how much he loved that Doberman and probably that loss I experienced when I was little. So I choose to honor his memory by rescuing Dobermans. Oh, that's a great story. Great reason to do things. Went online and I typed in Doberman Rescue in Illinois and the first hit that I got was Illinois Doberman Rescue Plus. I had absolutely no intention of adopting, but I'm like, oh, let's see. Let's see what kind of Dobermans they have. And I started looking through the list and I found this Doberman that really caught my eye. It was actually a Doberman mix. She was so unique looking. I decided on a whim to apply for her and I ended up adopting her. And when I went to meet her, her foster mom also had a German shepherd who didn't really like people a whole lot. And I was able to walk into the house and introduce myself appropriately to the shepherd. And I was playing with her shepherd in a matter of minutes. And she, I guess, saw something that prompted her to say, you should foster dogs. I half-heartedly said, yeah, sure. You know, I'll, I'll give it, I'll give it a thought. And you never, ever, ever tell a rescuer anything half-heartedly because they will absolutely hound you down until you do it or not. 
And that's what ended up happening. Uh, my first event with IDR was an adoptathon. When we used to do those, we were handling some of the orphans that needed a home and we would have approved adopters come in and be able to see all the dogs kind of in one area, which we don't do anymore for liability purposes. FYI, for anyone wondering, unfortunately, we can't do those events anymore. We decided to take home one of the dogs that we were handling and that became my first foster dog. So that is how I officially became involved in IDR was adopting on a whim. Tell us a little bit about Doberman, the breed, the dog, and why they're so cool. So everyone knows the stereotypes about Dobermans. They're very loyal. They're um, quote unquote protective. They are, they love their owners and they're called Velcro dogs. A lot of those things are very true. And that's part of the reason why I love the breed. I find that their love and affection and the bond that they have with their owner is bar none to anything that I've ever fought with any other breed. Um, and I think they're incredibly smart. They're highly trainable. I guess Andy just felt the need because of what he saw in the show world to have a specific rescue. Not so much, not so much in the show world per se, but outside of the show world where ethical breeding practices aren't exhibited and Dobermans, you know, a lot of people think it's going to be really easy to breed a purebred dog and they're going to make all this money. And then they find out that it's actually quite expensive to vet all of them correctly and then you may not move out your stock and then these dogs end up homeless because they weren't able to sell them or whatever whatever it is you know people go to a pet store and they buy a doberman well you can't return a dog you know a year later to a pet store they have no place to go so that's really where the need kind of came in for a breed specific rescue in in illinois as far as Dobermans go, it was more the, the unethical side of breeding. He saw such great things in the show world and how ethical all of that was, decided that there needed to be a solution to the other side of the, of the coin. Does it take anything special to, to be a foster of a Doberman? Is it, is it, are they different than a lot of other dogs? Are there certain people that shouldn't foster a Doberman or should think twice about it? Yes, I think anybody can foster a Doberman because every every breed of dog has different temperaments and personalities. Some are easier than others. You know, that's true with, with any breed that you're talking about. Uh, Dobermans particularly, though, they are a working breed dog. They were bred to have a job, so they get bored very easily. So they do often require a very active participant in their life, somebody who's willing to mentally stimulate them. They don't do well in an unstructured environment. If you don't take the time to teach them basic manners, they soon become a 60 to 85 pound puppy, you know, that runs around and doesn't know how big they are. So it does, I think, take a little bit more of experience to foster or have a, a working breed companion. They're definitely not couch potatoes. They have their moments where they're couch potatoes. So if you're looking for a dog that is a couch potato, Doberman probably isn't right for you, but they're so fun. They love to play. They just love to be stimulated and they're just active participants in whatever you're doing. If you want an easygoing dog, maybe a Doberman isn't the right way to go. 
but if you have an active lifestyle and you love going on walks and you love training and you love teaching dogs how to be dogs, Dobermans are going to be an excellent choice for you because they're a quick study, in my opinion. A lot of them are. Yeah, my experiences with Dobermans have only been from when I was younger and my best friend who lived across the street, they had one in their family. And, you know, they always talked about how protective uh, she was and they always had to lock, put her in a room so I could enter the house. And if I was, you know, had to be in the house playing, she either had to be downstairs in a room or something like that. So it was, that was really my first experience with them, but I've never really dealt with them um, since. So, so is that, uh, is that breed specific? Is that something that's just in their nature that they have to protect? Dobermans were originally bred to work. They are considered a working breed dog. They were bred for protection and it is inherently in their genetics to want to protect sometimes. That is a stereotype. Some of them are incredibly friendly to strangers. Some of them do exhibit stranger danger, but there are some strategies that we recommend for people who have visitors coming over that their Doberman has never met. It's often a good idea to get them on a harness and a lead, not allow free contact and kind of just win them over with treats. They're oftentimes won over incredibly easy. They just need to know that you're okay and that you're their friend. So I never recommend walking into a Doberman household and just expecting to be best friends with the Doberman. You're definitely going to have to introduce yourself and you're going to have to do a little bit of work to win their trust in some cases. That's not true all the time, but in some cases, yeah. All right. All dogs are different. No matter what breed they are, they all have their own yeah. personalities, just like people. So Allie is, works with Illinois Doberman Rescue. Um, I've seen pictures of her having some in her facility working with them. So how did you find Allie and why, did, why was Allie a good choice for you and what brought you to her? So Illinois Doberman Rescue Plus, we fostered with a sound beginning program probably about three years ago. This was before I was on the board of directors, so I wasn't involved in that decision, but we made the choice to go more positive route and go horse free. And a sound beginnings owner, Julie, is an adopter of ours. So I, I believe that's how that relationship was formed. And then you know, I met Allie through having evaluations done, and then eventually she also fostered for us. And I just find that Allie is a wealth of information. She's always willing to help. She always has good advice. And I find that she's just a really caring person, and she's a realistic person when it comes to dogs. And she really kind of meets them where they're at, and she doesn't try to make them something that they're not, which is something that a lot of people need to understand about these quote unquote tougher breeds when you're talking about bully breeds and you're talking about Dobermans and you're talking about working lines and things like that. They are going to be more stubborn. And I think that she has a really realistic view on breed traits. And I appreciate that. And uh, Illinois Doberman Rescue has found a sound beginning, all of their trainers. And I got this sit, which is Allie's own business to be incredibly beneficial for us. We have learned so much from the sound beginning and I got this sit. It's just, it's been invaluable. So I guess let me ask this question for you. Have trainers always been part of rescues or has, or has rescues always reached out to trainers to help dogs get adopted? Or is that more of a recent trend within the last, you know, bunch of years? I would say behavior in general, everywhere has become a bigger focus and I'm thankful for that. There have always been 
trainers involved in rescue because they see the need that these dogs have where they may have been let down. But I think more so these past several years, rescues are really kind of putting their focus into how can we make these dogs the best version of themselves. And if we don't have those resources ourselves to do that, we are more inclined now to bring in somebody from the outside to help us understand why, why this dog might be acting this way. Because there's, there's kind of two sides to the coin with, with dogs. It's, yes, the medical aspect and what rescues provide as far as medical goes and rehabilitation and things like that is, is very important. But for a long time, I do think that some of the behavioral aspect was overlooked. You know, oh, this dog is just has too much energy and he's just very hyper and that's that. Not that there was never any understanding, but as much emphasis wasn't put on it. So I would say that it's a new, a newer trend, positive trend. So Jesse, tell us about the foster process with IDR. What happens from the start when someone's just interested in being a foster to when you actually place a dog in a home? What, what's, what's all the in-between stuff? Whenever somebody reaches out to us with interest in fostering, the first thing that they have to do is apply to foster. So we look at the home environment, the if there's children in the home, the ages of those children, their yard situation, there's several, there's a whole list of questions that we ask on our application process about, you know, prior experience, what types of habits you're willing to work with and things like that. And after that, if your application gets approved, we do do landlord checks. Um, we call homeowners associations, things like that. And we obviously perform a vet check. We ask that people keep their pets up to date on yearly wellness, rabies, distemper, heartworm testing, heartworm prevention. Cats should be kept up to date on wellness and rabies. If all that goes well, then we move to a home visit and we have another volunteer go out there and we visit the home. We just sit down and talk to them about our expectations with foster homes, what it's going to look like some tips and suggestions. And then once that's done, it goes back to the rescue for approval. They would receive an approval from us. And then we would take a look once again at their whole lifestyle and their previous experience. And we would make a determination on the available Dobermans in our program who might be a good fit for them. And then is that kind of the same process for someone who wants to adopt a Doberman from you? Yes, actually, it's the exact same process. We don't have a foster application per se. So you just fill out the application to adopt. So the process is exactly the same. It's, it's a mirror process. So we're going to talk a little bit about this in the Ask a Trainer segment. But uh, Jesse, what um, advice do you have to people who do foster and adopt to help that transition when they bring the dog home for the first time? The most important thing that we ask people to do is slow introductions and it's incredibly important because even if you have a surrender form it's an owner surrender people are typically typically really truthful about their dog's habits or it's a stray that came from an animal control with a lesser known background out of an abundance of caution for your personal safety for your family's personal safety and your resident pet's personal safety put that dog away for like 48 hours and I'm not kidding. Now, when you say put away, what do you mean? So people don't take it out of context. When I say, um, when I say put the dog away, create a safe space for that animal. And whether that is, I prefer when people have a completely separate room for their foster pets or their newly adopted dogs to decompress 
I introduce only myself over the for first 48 hours to my foster dog before I even introduce them to my husband or the child in my house. I want to establish trust with them. They're comfortable with me. They're scared in their new environment. They're getting used to the sounds and the smells of your house. They're very overwhelmed. They're very scared. So I really want to establish that baseline of trust with them and work really hard on that before I expect them to then meet two or three more people in my household. They at least have that bond with me already that they can look back at me and say, hey, is this okay? And I can give them some reassurance and they know that, that I'm a rock for them already. So after that 48 hours of decompression time, really taking it slow and not expecting them to meet your dogs. Really, even in, in the first week, I, I'm not introducing them to, to dogs, you know, face to face. So the slower you can take it, the more likely you are to be successful. And that is the one thing that people stumble on is we give people all of this literature and all of this advice and a wealth of information about how to do it right. And they come home and they're so excited and it's such an exciting period. And, and I can sympathize with that. But it is hard. It is hard because you just you have a new dog. You want to show it off to the world. You want to sit on the couch with it, you know, and like, but in reality, the dog just isn't ready. The dog doesn't know anything about your house, doesn't know, you know, it's a new world for him. And he's got to, you know, he or she's got to figure it out. And that's where, you know, going slow just helps, you know, helps them get more comfortable with what's going on. Yeah, definitely. And it can be tough, you know, when you bring home a new foster and it's scared and it's crying and it's great for the first 24 hours it can definitely make you want to throw in the towel but it's an adjustment period and it's really up to us to make that transition as smooth as we possibly can for these dogs some of them may have never been given skills to cope in their entire lives we control the situation and we can control the outcome to a certain extent so just allowing that dog to feel as comfortable as possible and giving them time to adjust before expecting them to perform a certain way in your household. I'm sure IDR, just like every other rescue, always needs help in some form or another. How can people help IDR? Well, of course, we are always looking for foster homes. So that's number one. Foster homes save rescues if they are able to board probably anywhere in upwards of $5,000 plus per year in just boarding costs alone. We always need home visit volunteers during the application process. We need people available to transport dogs. We need people for fundraising, events, things like that. We need people to help with admin work. We need people to help with social media. The sky is the limit. If you have a special skill, maybe you don't have the resources to foster or the space in your home to really create that separation for your foster dog and bring in a foster dog safely, but you want to help still, regardless of whether it's with Illinois Doberman Rescue Plus or any other rescue in general, just reach out and say, hey, what do you guys need? You know, even if you can only offer a donation. Right now, obviously, we're in a really difficult time with the whole coronavirus thing. So all of our events and fundraisers have been canceled pretty much until further notice. We know just about as much, obviously, as everybody else does. And it's a very uncertain time. If you have any money to spare right now, donations are paramount for us because our fundraising has really been cut off at the knees. We would just really appreciate any support, whether it's you know physically fostering, volunteering, donating, we'll take it all. If someone chooses to foster, 
is is the dog basically theirs and it's everything's out of pocket for them or does idr cover certain stuff all of it how does that work we cover every single expense relating to that foster dog down to medical care food we provide towels what i actually do is i make a new foster kit for new foster homes and it's a rubbermaid bin you know one of those big plastic things with the lids on it and we pack it full of towels so you have you don't have to use your own towels if you're bathing or if you need to wipe things down we provide um, Clorox wipes to get you started with accidents because a new dog is gonna need time to acclimate to where your yard is what your schedule is things like that so you may be wiping some things down there may be some accidents we include treats we include uh, booklets clickers Anything you could think of is in there. There's toys, there's chews, there's all kinds of things. So we really try to set up our foster homes for success with just basic necessities and everything they need. And then we provide the food, the vet care. Some of our fosters do choose to buy their own foster food, but we are fortunate enough to be able to have that in our budget to provide whatever the foster needs if they require it. Uh, that sounds amazing. I've, I've never fostered before, but the more I learn about it, the more I'm like, wow, why wouldn't anybody want to fo- I mean, I know you have to sometimes give up the dog, but not too much out of pocket expense, which is kind of cool. No, you at IDR definitely don't have any out of pocket expense. The only thing that you assume responsibility for is really any potential damage that a foster dog might do to your home. But in the 10 years that I've been fostering, there's been pretty minimal damage to my things surprisingly we don't really hear too many people saying that you know foster dog tore through their house and you know i can't speak for the everybody's entire experience with fostering but it's been abundantly positive on my end for a very long time so i'm i'm pretty confident when i tell people that it's not actually as hard as you think it is and your first adoption is your hardest and it's hard to say goodbye but i call it the rescue wheel Every single time I adopt out a foster dog, I'm able to pull another dog out of boarding or a dog from an owner who's on a waiting list who desperately needs our help. And it's just one more life that we can save. And the more dogs that I can adopt out, the more dogs we save, bottom line. So how can people find IDR and then how and who do they need to and how do they contact you guys? If you do a Google search for Illinois Doberman Rescue Plus will be the very first hit that you find. Our website is I-L-D-O-B-E rescue.com. And then if you want to foster or volunteer, there is a tab right on the homepage um, about how you can help. All right. Thank you, Jesse, for talking about IDR. Hopefully this helps get some people interested in, in Dobermans and whether it's fostering or adopting. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It was so much fun. All right, so that brings us to our last segment of Ask a Trainer. So, Allie, give us a good way to introduce a new dog that you just fostered, you just adopted. How do you bring them into your home in a correct way that is is setting you up for success? Yeah, so Jesse made a, a super good point, and you know, one of the the biggest ones that I try to tell you know new adopters. Um, you know, people that are, are just getting into fostering, even people who have been fostering for years, um, go slow. You know, um, I'm always looking at risk versus reward. You know, is it worth it to even introduce, you know, two dogs to a certain situation? Um, if we know that a dog has a certain fear of something, you know, is it 
you know, it, it's generally worth it to counter condition those fears, but at the risk of not exposing it too soon. So how do you, do. so for time, like you're saying, go slow. Is there a general estimated time that, that is it you're waiting two weeks, you're waiting a week, or like Jesse said, you wait 48 hours. Is it, is it truly just dependent on the dog? And is there a way to tell, is it just, you got to look at the signs? Yeah. I mean, honestly, any training or behavior thing, you know, fostering, adopting, bringing a new dog in, um, you know, any of that is really going to heavily depend on the dog. Um, there are dogs that, you know, are more outgoing and more comfortable and are going to be your more solid dogs. Um, but there are definitely going to be your more fearful dogs that are, are worried about, uh, you know, new environments, new animals, new people. Um, so those are the ones you definitely want to take the time with. Usually, you know, if you know a good amount about at least dog body language, you're going to be able to tell kind of what's pushing the dog too far and, you know, where it needs to stop and where you kind of need to dial things back. So what are some things you do while, once you bring the dog in, in the front door, what, what do you start doing or what can you start doing to help the dog feel calmer? As you know, I've had a lot of different dogs come into this house. I have had many, many, many foster dogs. I've been fostering for um, going on five years now. So I've had, you know, foster dog after foster dog after foster dog. Um, I have adopted three of my own dogs in that five-year period. Plus running a board and train, I am bringing new dogs into my home, you know, on a pretty regular basis. Basically every, every 10 days or so, I'm getting a new dog in here. Again, I'm looking at the, the very first step is that I have put away all of my dogs. Usually I try to make sure they are as tired as possible so that they're not barking, they're not whining, they're not doing anything to kind of upset that dog as soon as this dog gets in. Usually the first thing that I do is I bring them into my living room, which is um, pretty minimal as far as stuff goes. You know, it's quiet. Sometimes I'll have music playing, specially formulated dog music is always nice. I usually just drop the leash and let them sniff around and let them, you know, choose if they want to come, come by me, if they want to do anything. There's usually treats all over my living room floor as they walk in to immediately start building those positive associations. And I don't spend a lot of time with them. You know, if they're a very confident, outgoing dog, then yeah, absolutely. You know, especially if they've already been living in a home for a while they usually come in and they're totally fine. And they're like, Oh yeah, let's, you know, kind of hang out right away. And they're willing to approach me. Whereas fosters can tend to be a little bit more shy and they might just need 10 minutes to sniff around, get used to their surroundings. And then they go up to the foster room, which is a room where I let new dogs decompress. Sometimes they go in the same room as Hunk. Um, other times they have their own room. It just kind of depends. But even when they're in the room with Hunk, there is no visual with Hunk. No one gets a visual when they're up in their kennels. So those are my first steps generally. And then like Jesse said, you know, my first three days with the dog, and I do tell all my board and train client dogs this, you know, again, with fosters, it's a little bit different, but usually I give a dog three to five days to really decompress where I'm not taking them on a ton of walks. I'm not doing a ton of training. Um, and I am very upfront with owners. And that is why I do have my 10 day minimum on my board and train, because I need at least three days to let that dog just kind of settle into the routine realize that they're in a new environment, realize that this environment is safe. 
And then we usually start training after those three days. And it might just be, okay, we're going to walk around the block, you know, on a quieter day. I do have a lot of quiet places that I like to take dogs for walks where they're on their decompression period, because I don't want, you know, people running up to us on walks saying, hey, can I pet your new dog? You know, and when people do come running up to us on walks, I say, sorry, they're in training or, you know, I just don't know enough about this dog. Please just, you know, stay over there and we're going to walk past you, uh, you know, at a distance. All right. So you mentioned a safe place. What should be included in that safe place, whether it's music, a crate, or just a room, or, you know, I don't know what else. The safe place generally, you know, again, it's going to depend on the dog. Um, a crate alone can be a safe place, but some dogs have some confinement issues, especially if they've been sitting in a shelter for a long time in a kennel. You know, they don't want to just pop right back into a, an even smaller kennel a lot of times. Um, so sometimes, you know, giving them a room, you know, I generally recommend like segmenting the bathroom or the kitchen just because it's smaller, it's, you know, not as busy generally, depending on the setup of your house, you know, an upstairs room is usually good or even a downstairs room so that they're not, you know, in the high traffic area. That's, you know, a, a scary time, you know, especially if they're fearful of men or something like that. And we have them sitting in the middle of the living room where the family passes, you know, and they feel that they're trapped in their kennel. In the Asylum Beginning book, which, you know, I highly, highly recommend for all fosters and adopters I'll put to a link read. for it in the, Thank in you. the show notes. So it's, it's a very short read, but it goes through basically, you know, your first two weeks with your dog, what you should be doing, what you shouldn't be doing, what you should be starting with training, um, what, you know, what we, we want to see. It talks about, you know, different body language, different training exercises, and just very simple, easy training exercises to set that dog up for success. If you've, even if you've fostered for years, um, even if you have tons and tons of dog experience, read the book. I read it, I don't know, two years ago, I'd say at this point, and I had already been fostering for three years. And I was like, wow, you know, it, it just put your, put my, my process into order, I guess you could say. Um, and I also added things to my process after reading that. Yeah, it, it was very helpful. And, you know, you can even read, okay, we're getting the dog tomorrow. Let's read just the beginning and the, the day one. And then that night, you know, read day two. So it's very, very, very easy read. Or you can just read it all together and highlight and post-it note things, which I did all over my book as well. Going back to that safe space, you know, if the kennel is working, great. If they're a little bit nervous about the kennel and they can stay loose in a room and not destroy the room or go to the bathroom in the room, great. You can also utilize exercise pens, which you can get like the wire ones or the plastic ones to give the dog a little bit more space. So you can even attach that to the crate so that they can still walk in and out of their open crate, but then they might have a little bit more space where, you know, there might be a food and water bowl in there. Or there might be room for toys in there or, you know, their mat or something like that. Um, you know, the way that I am successful is by instantly starting to build positive associations. So again, when a dog walks into my house, some take the treats right off the floor. Some are a little bit more apprehensive about it, but they have the option, you know, they have the option to, to start getting good things right away. Um, then when they're in their quiet area, you know, again, I'm going to be the only one pulling them out of that quiet area. If I have people over or whatever, they're generally going to be upstairs, you know, unless they're the super social dog, but usually I don't introduce them to anyone for the first three days, at least. Uh, I know some of the questions on our Facebook um, group for the podcast, Who's Training Who. Uh, that's at Who's Training Who if you want to find it. 
what's a good way to introduce two dogs to each other? I know you have multiple dogs, so you're probably an expert by now about how to introduce two dogs together to do it the right way so that, you know, maybe they won't always love each other, but at least they tolerate each other. If I'm looking at, you know, brand new foster, yes, I want to get information on that foster as far as their dog friendliness level. If I'm looking at a board and train, I'm probably not introducing them to dogs unless I absolutely, you know, know that they love dogs. You know, of course they're doing the day training, so they are potentially going to play with other dogs, but not necessarily. But when I'm looking at a foster dog, I'm generally just looking to get a good feel. I'm not necessarily going to have them completely interacting with dogs the whole time. For me, that's just, you know, I'm looking to build a relationship so that it's successful as opposed to messing it up. So again, going back to, if you just follow the rule of going slow, generally I'm not even going to introduce dogs for probably a good two weeks. And I'm always looking at making sure that I have the right dog to introduce them to. And, and what does that mean? Well, Hunk is, Hunk is generally my dog that I introduce other dogs to because he's solid. Um, I know him really, really well. I know that he's going to play really nicely. I know he's not going to overcorrect a dog if they do something he doesn't like. Um, generally, he's just going to run away or lay down or... Um, you know, just kind of get him out of the, get himself out of the situation if, if he feels too much pressure from that other dog. So, you know, looking at, you do have to have the right dog to introduce that other dog to. I want to get to know two dogs really well before I have them get to know each other. Um, but you can do some simple things to try to help. So like doing parallel walks. So giving those two dogs enough space that they aren't having that social pressure to actually meet but they are around each other. A lot of people will start a two gate system. So basically what that means is we put up two gates where they are separated. They can't touch noses at all. Generally, we recommend that these dogs aren't able to see each other. So you're probably gonna throw sheets over those two gates. The only time that you take the sheets off is if you're going to make it rain chicken for them. So basically the only times that they're seeing each other, really, really good things happen. You can do the kind of the same thing on walks, you know, building positive associations to other dogs. We call it the who is that. It's also been called engage or disengage. Um, people also call it look at that. I'm sure that there's other things. But basically what that does is every time a, you know, a dog or a person or a car or a bike or something pops up into that dog's environment, as long as that dog is being calm, we would reinforce them. So this does require a certain amount of distance, but you know, if they're a little bit nervous about people, or if they're a little bit nervous about cars or other dogs, this will start helping them build positive associations to that. You know, Sue. So that is the process that we did with her. You know, we just started building positive associations to other dogs for her. And after about two years, she's now started playing with Hunk, which was just about saying, hey, dogs are good. Dogs in your environment are good. You know, and then we trusted the process and we, we let her interact with Hunk. I know from when I first started with her, you know, she was about to rip my head off every time I touched the door handle. You know, and now we're like best friends. I, you know, I stayed, I was, did overnights, you know, for when, when her owner went on vacation and stuff. And, you know, like you wouldn't have known that she wanted to bite my head off the first time I saw her, you know? And so it's, I mean, I know you, uh, that's a testament to you and the work that you did with her, but to even see the videos now of them playing together, is just, it's, it's just awesome that she, 
you know, she's doing play bow. She, you know, she just looks like a normal dog, you know, like it's, yeah. it's just great to see. Yeah. Well, the last play date we did, it was funny because Hunk was actually crabbier than her. And he was just like, I don't want to play. And Sue was like, come on, keep playing with me. You know, and two years ago, that's not the dog that would have, you know, tried to play with Hunk. That's again, that is in the sound beginning book as well. You know, we're talking about building positive associations in, in this, this podcast. podcast I definitely, definitely want to cover treat and retreat. And who is that um, as far as like guests coming in when they do meet the dogs. But, you know, as far as dog, dog stuff, I highly recommend starting with parallel walks, the two gate system. Again, no visuals. We don't want to create frustration. Um, but when they do get short visuals, it's chicken, chicken, chicken for both dogs. Everybody's happy on top of those parallel walks and, and playing who is that on those parallel walks with both dogs, not even just your solid dog that you know, you know, both dogs need to say, oh, that dog makes chicken happen every time I see it. I like that dog. So that's, you know, a really good way to start. Talked about positive um, association. Is that always involving food or is there other ways you can do positive association that doesn't include food? Um, I mean, generally food's going to be your easiest as well as, you know, your highest value to your dogs. You know, there are instances where toys are valuable. There are instances where praise is valuable, but um, usually your highest value and your easiest to manage is going to be food. Um, you know, you don't want to, especially with two new dogs and, or, you know, one new dog and another dog, you don't want any issues with toys. When I'm introducing dogs, all resources are picked up, you know, I make sure that my floors are clean. I make sure that there's, you know, no toys out, no bones out. Um, you know, I'm doing a sweep under the couch to make sure that there's nothing valuable under there. Um, you know, I want to set these dogs up for success and I don't want to create any unnecessary tension. So I'm making sure that, you know, everything's clear. There are no resources out, um, or at least not high value resources and slowly introducing those as well. So we've talked about dog to dog interaction. Jesse brought up a point of that when she brings in a foster, she does 48 hours of just contact with her, not even her husband or kids. So what is your recommendation for someone bringing home a dog to their family? How do you navigate, you know, everybody getting a turn to want to see the new dog or not having that excitement of like, I want to touch and pet the puppy. And what should people really be doing? I get a lot of calls about, you know, dogs being fearful of people. I mean, dogs getting in a fight with a new dog or, you know, or the new dog getting in a fight with the old dog, whatever it is. Usually the answer is too much too soon. So again, going back to making that dog's world small, that also means with people, um, you know, we, we don't want to just have this dog sitting in our living room and it, expect that it's going to be okay with a brand new stranger coming over, you know, within the first week, even we're, we're seeing, we do see a lot of, of fear aggression from dogs to strangers. It seems to be that more dogs are developing fear aggression towards men than women. Not always. There are dogs that, that prefer men over women. And there are dogs that just don't care if it's a man or a woman. They, they just don't want anything to do with either of them. Now, is that something oh, more recent or is it just that people start noticing that that's a thing? I think people just take behavior more seriously now and understand behavior more so than, than they used to necessarily. Basically what we want to do again, still setting that dog up for success just because a dog is nervous about a person or a dog starts barking at a person or a dog air snaps at a person doesn't mean 
that they are aggressive towards all people or people in general. That means that they're fearful and that means that we're pushing them too much. So generally, you know, what we want to do is not push that dog. So again, like I said, even if I have a board and train that I know is super friendly with dogs, they're probably not meeting anyone within the first three to five days. Then I'm going to have them on their leash and harness when they do meet somebody. And as soon as that person comes into their picture, I'm going to have that person do what's called the treat and retreat. So a mistake that a lot of people make is they, if it's a fearful standoffish dog, they do what we call the treat trail towards them. And then the treat trail ends with that person holding a treat. And the dog has to make the decision of, do I want that treat bad enough to go approach the thing that I'm afraid of? Or, you know, am I just going to stay back here and not take that treat? Most dogs are going to decide, all right, I'm going to run over, grab that treat. But what happens when the treat is gone? The scary thing is still there. So that's how we get a lot of unintentional little air snaps or, or bites actually to people's hands because the scary thing's still there. The scary thing didn't go away when they got that treat. In fact, most of the time, the scary thing tries to reach over my head and pet me instead. So instead with the treat and retreat, we are allowing those dogs to still get the reinforcements build those positive associations towards those people, but be able to move away. So what the treat and retreat looks like, and like I told you, I would send a, uh, a video over so we can include that in the show notes, would be throwing the treats behind the dog. So this is also a, a good way for us trainers to get out of a situation if uh, we see a dog's body language tighten up. You know, instead of having the owner tighten up on their leash, we just toss a treat behind them and they go follow the treat. So that dog kind of diffuses that situation on its own by moving away. Whereas if, you know, we go to put a little pressure on the leash, uh, a lot of times that is when a dog will actually snap because they feel that pressure and they get more tense. So instead, if we just send them away with a treat, that pressure is avoided. But by doing treat and retreat, we are able to, you know, teach that dog to manage themselves and to move away and not have that social pressure of, oh, well, I really, really want that treat. So I'm going to go up to that scary thing and I'm going to hope that that scary thing doesn't do anything to me. That's what I recommend with, with all fearful dogs, whether it's we're seeing fear, aggression, or just fear, you know, don't force that dog into anything that they're not ready for. So bringing in a different mix of people is, you know, what if a family has a baby or they're fostering a dog and it's been a year or two that they've been fostering this dog and now they have a new baby. How do you go about introducing the dog, whether it's been there before or you're bringing it in, I guess it's probably two separate things of whether it's been there already or you're bringing it into the situation of a baby or even kids in general. How would you work on introducing that? We're always going back to, I mean, I'm always, always, always going to be talking about risk versus reward, um, keeping the environment small for that dog. You know, if I'm fostering a dog temporarily, yes, I want to see how it does with babies and with kids. But again, risk versus reward. Do we need to put that dog in the situation of the baby crawling all over it? I mean, we don't need to put any dog in that situation, but, you know, that's just good management. Management, management, management. Management is key. Um, you know, even in behavior modification, if you don't have management, you've got nothing. If the dog gets to keep practicing the behavior, the behavior is just going to keep on going. Do your dog and your kid interaction safely. 
again, I'm going to be playing who is that with kids and the dogs. I'm going to be having the kids do treat and retreat with the dog and just continue to, to toss treats at that dog anytime they walk past their cage or anytime they walk past their safe place or anytime they walk past the gate they're behind. Start building those positive associations because you're going to have more success if that dog sees that that person as, as a positive thing. You know, obviously babies can only participate so much, but if we're looking at, you know, an older kid that can at least follow directions of throw treats at the dog whenever I say to, you know, but a lot of it goes into teaching your kids to know how to interact with dogs. If, you know, you've got a, a kid that can't properly interact with a dog because they want to pull on its tail or they want to pull on its ears or lift up its lips or jump on it, you know, that dog is eventually going to react unless that dog is just a complete bomb proof saint of a dog. Um, but eventually that dog is going to do something. It kind of goes back into body language again, too. If I'm seeing a dog give whale eye to a kid, I'm going to call that kid back to me because that dog, you know, is telling me it's uncomfortable with something that, that kid's doing, whether it just be that that dog is just uncomfortable with kids because it has negative associations from its past with kids, you know, that that's something we can't always know. I would do it kind of like I would do dog introductions. You know, I'm going to build positive associations, build positive associations, put up exercise pens, give that dog space, um, play who is that towards the kids. And then I'm going to slowly let them get a little bit closer. Again, making sure that, you know, the kid understands their role too. We're not going to tug on the dog. We're not going to jump on the dog. We're not going to hit the dog. Um, you know, we're going to feed the dog some treats and we're going to leave the dog alone. So we're going to add another scenario to this conversation here. So what do you do if you have to move as, you know, some people are changing homes or going, you know, moving from a big house to an apartment, or maybe there is no difference. It's all the same how you do it. So how would you help a dog transition from a place they used that they knew as home and to now is going to be totally different? Pretty much all the same strategies that we've been talking about bringing a new dog into a home, you know, just because your dog is not new to you, they are still new to this home. So we are going to treat it a lot like bringing in a, a new dog to a new home. Um, now we're just bringing an old dog to a new home. So, you know, this should be an advantage because you know this dog well, um, you know their body language, their, their stress signals, all those things. So it should be easier for you to read that dog because you're familiar with that dog. But, you know, same rules apply. Keep their world small at first. Again, if you have a pretty confident dog and you want to let them kind of drop the leash and go explore a little bit, great. But make sure that there's nothing, you know, scary that you have set up for them because it is a new house. It is going to be a little bit more scary for them. So I would generally keep their world small. If it was me, I might just have them kind of in the living room and then I might kind of open it up room by room for them. Other things that we can definitely consider is, um, like adaptive diffusers or putting an adaptive collar on, um, you know, depending on the level of anxiety that that dog displays in its everyday mm -hmm. environment. Um, Again, playing the Sound Beginning CD or other other music that is specially formulated for dogs. They make things, you know, they make a lot of natural products. Rescue Remedy is one that I like to use, um, which is just a, a natural drop of stuff. Um, it's I think it's formulated from flowers. 
you can put, you know, it's, it's very safe. So you can put as much on as you possibly need. Usually it says do four drops at a time. Um, you can apply this to a treat. You can apply this to their food. I found that it works for a few dogs. Um, again, if we're looking at a clinical level of anxiety, natural remedies aren't going to do anything, but, um, you know, we can always try them. I use composure chews as well. Um, they're just a little chew that uh, is just another, like I said, natural remedy that helps some dogs and help, you know, doesn't help others. Thundershirt, same thing. Some dogs they help, some dogs they don't, but you know, you might as well give it a try. Any of these products, you want to make sure that you are not only using them when stressful things are going to happen. The composure chews and uh, the, um, the rescue remedy, those you can use situationally, but like if you're going to put a thunder shirt on or you're going to play the music, those can become environmental cues for that dog to get stressed out. I'll use it in the context of thunderstorms. So if we always are about to put the thunder shirt on and start playing the music when a thunderstorm's coming, that dog's going to start freaking out before the thunderstorm even comes because those are contextual cues for them. So you want to play that music at other times, you know, play it just when you're doing training or play it when you're just doing, you know, some gait exercises with them if they're, you're introducing two dogs so that it's not always a negative. Uh, same with the Thunder shirt. It shouldn't just go on when bad things are about to happen. It should be on, you know, at good times too. Those are just some helpful, helpful tips to, to help your dog transition to a new home. If you have any more questions about how to bring a new dog home, please reach out to Allie at iwhispercanineslisten at gmail.com, which is also in our show notes. Thanks to Julie Casper for talking about Illinois Doberman Rescue. Plus, if you would like to donate, foster, or support in another way, their contact information is also available in our show notes. If you are enjoying what you are hearing and haven't yet, please subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to us on. Please join our Facebook group at Who's Training Who to chat about dogs, topics we talk about in the show, share funny or cool things dealing with dogs. We are open to whatever you want to talk about that deals with dogs. If you have a topic idea or an ask a trainer question, please comment in our Facebook group or email info at waggytails.pet. Thanks for listening to Who's Training Who.